This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. How many of you have heard about the 10,000-hour rule? 10,000-hour rule. And it's really came about by an author by the name of Malcolm Gladwell. He calls it the 10,000 hours for success. How does this work? He said, whatever area of success that you seek, you have to invest at least 10,000 hours. The author claims that this kind of around the 10,000 hours is sort of the magic number. For example, if you want to be a world-class musician, or you want to be a great surgeon, a great lawyer, whatever it is that you seek to succeed in life, is that you got to invest at least 10,000 hours in order to become a successful person in that field. And as I read this, I said, well, now, in that case, it stands to reason that if I want to pursue godliness in life, if we want to become godly person in life, it's got to take at least 10,000 hours. If you want to be a godly person in this godless world, you have to put in the hours. There is no going around this. I know this may make some of you squirmish because you think, in this age of instant messaging, well, I want to be godly instantly. Well, it doesn't work that way. Shortcuts do not work in the Christian life. Shortcuts do not work in pursuit of godliness. Now, we all like shortcuts, but not here. Think with me. How many hours have we invested in bad habits, in worldly entertainment, and in worldly thoughts, and pursuing worldly goals? How many hours we spent there? How are we going to expect to neutralize or counteract worldly experiences with only a couple of hours a week? It doesn't work that way. In pursuing godliness, investment of time and discipline is a must. In fact, that is the message of the Apostle Paul to his young colleague Titus. He is telling him that the pursuit of godliness is a process. The pursuit of godliness takes time. The pursuit of godliness requires discipline. And today I'm beginning this five-part series from the epistle of Paul to Titus, entitled, Pursuing Godliness in a Godless World. Let me tell you a few things about Titus. Titus came to the Lord through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's where he refers to him as my son in Christ. He's his spiritual child. So was Timothy. Timothy was led to the Lord also by Paul. But the interesting part is, if you contrast those two, Timothy and Titus, there's a great contrast. And you watch what he says to Titus and what he says to Timothy, and you notice that he understands the differences, and he, he approached them differently. Because Titus, when he came to Christ, he hit the ground running. In fact, he was, to Paul, Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> he would send him to troubleshoot in all the churches that desperately needed help, because he knew Titus can do it. 
Timothy needed a lot of propping up. <laughs> he was always suffering from timidity and fear, but not Titus. And so in the Corinthians church, which has had the, most of the problems, he sends him there, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and chapter 8. He sent Titus, Mr. Fix-It. But there is no tougher assignment that Paul could assign to Titus than the island of Crete. I mean, this is the toughest of the tough. I mean, this is the hardest assignment he's ever given to anyone, but he knew Titus could do it. Now, let me tell you about this island of Crete. I've been to Crete. It's a beautiful island now, (laughs) but it had a reputation back then. And that reputation was given to it by its people, not by people from outside who have prejudices and, and so forth. No, no. The local people, the local philosopher, the most famous guy by the name of Epimendes, said the following about his own people. He said, they are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But nonetheless, God loves the Cretans. Christ died for the Cretans. And for this reason, Paul sent Titus to deal with them because they had a great deal to overcome when they came to Christ. Like so many churches today, very few people within those churches are pursuing godliness. And the reason for that is because the preachers gave up a preaching on godliness. Now you have to ask the question, why do not all Christians pursue godliness? Paul, in his epistle to Titus, answers that question. Because godliness is not a one-time decision, and it's over. There are so many people preach a gospel that if you make a decision for Christ, that's it. You got your insurance policy. Now live any which way you want to live. But this is the nub of this epistle, that godliness and the pursuit of godliness takes time. Christian conversion is like a marriage. You say, I do, at the ceremony, then you spend the rest of your life doing. Godliness and the pursuit of godliness works in the same way. And by the way, godliness does not result from busyness. Godliness does not result from just serving on committees and boards and saying, well, I'm doing my thing. Godliness does not result from going to meetings, to seminars, to conferences. In some cases, those kind of religious activities hinder people from pursuing godliness. J.I. Packer, whom I consider to be one of the finest theologians of our time, put it this way. He said, modern Christians tend to make busyness their religion. If I were the evil one, I would keep Christians running haggard. I mean, I keep them running with their tongue hanging out, doing things, getting busy, 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 doing things that are not really important. (laughs) Others think that endless mountaintop experience, going from mountaintop experience to another mountaintop experience, is going to help them in the pursuit of godliness. Others think that consecration and reconsecration and another reconsecration, continuous reconsecration, or others think of being baptized and rebaptized and rebaptized, or dedication and rededication and rededication is going to make them godly. <laughs> they join church after church after church thinking that that's what's going to make them godly. That is not true. It's like the little boy who wrote from summer camp. He said, this is the sixth time I accepted Christ. I hope this time is going to stick. <laughs> 
Now, I hope you turn with me by now to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Verse 1, he says, For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which does what? Leads to godliness. What is he saying? How does this work? First, you come to Jesus Christ by faith. You receive Him as your Savior and Lord. That is the first step. You come to that saving knowledge. But it doesn't stop there. It has to continue. It will go on to bearing fruit of godliness. You have to grow in that godliness. How? By feeding on the truth of the Word of God. Only then will you be able to experience the fruit of godliness. Here's a formula for those of you who like formulas. Write it down because that is the summary of Titus. It goes something like this. Faith plus food equal fruit. Let's do that together. Faith plus food equal fruit. You know, I was thinking of how many are church today and confuse activities with the discipline of pursuing godliness, which is the call of every believer in life. And I thought of a story that I read long time ago that I have never forgotten. It took place back in the 1900s in a village in Russia. There was a priest in that village who wanted the kids to memorize Scripture, but he never taught them why. He never told them exactly why he wants them to memorize Scripture. But he offered them candy every time they memorized Scripture. Now, one of those kids had a phenomenal memory, and he memorized the Scripture because he liked candy. He loved candy. And this particular kid had pockets and pockets and pockets full of candy. He memorized the four Gospels. But this boy did not memorize it because he loved the Word of God. He loved candy. His name? Nikita Khrushchev. He grew up to become the leader of the Soviet Union. In fact, Khrushchev tried to stamp Christianity out of the Soviet Union. On his order, the Soviet government closed hundreds of churches and banned the teaching of religion to kids. In 1957, Nikita Khrushchev said, the vast majority of young people growing up today do not believe in God. He said, education, scientific knowledge, and the study of the laws of nature leave no room for believing God. Now, I memorize Scripture with my kids. will tell you, when I used to drive them to school when they were young, we used to memorize Scripture in the car, and we talked about the passage of verses and why and so forth. And I now want to teach my grandchildren to memorize Scripture. I am all for memorizing Scripture. It is very important, but you have to explain why. So many people can really have a lot of head knowledge of God's Word, like Khrushchev, but they never pursue godliness. Why? Because the pursuit of godliness is not just mere head knowledge. Knowledge is wonderful, (laughs) but if that head knowledge alone will not lead anywhere, if godliness is a mere head knowledge, then the devil would be the godliest creature because he believes the Bible. He knows the Bible. He memorized the Bible. Back to our formula. Faith plus food equal fruit. 
faith first, feeding upon the Word of God on a continuous basis, it will lead to godliness. It will lead to the fruit of godliness. And that is why the core of Paul's message to Titus was telling him that godliness is a process. He's telling him that godliness takes time. Godliness requires daily discipline. And in verse 5, he gives him a roadmap. How do you know a person is godly? How do you know the fruit of godliness? Where do you see it? How do you approve? How? He gives him a roadmap. Look at that verse with me, verse 5. For this reason, what reason? I left you in Crete so that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. There was a whole bunch of messy things that needed to be taken care of. And to appoint elders in every town. (laughs) Paul knew that if church leaders are not going to be pursuing godliness, their congregations will not be pursuing godliness. Listen, it happens every time. Leadership makes or breaks. If the leaders are not pursuing godliness, congregations are not going to be pursuing godliness. That is the absolute truth. And then he goes in verses 6 and 7, he gives them about 15 characteristics or 15 fruit of godliness that he can observe in people. And because he said once those leaders are pursuing godliness, once they are producing the fruit of godliness, you're going to find that everybody in the churches are pursuing godliness. Now notice that of all the qualification he gives here in those two verses, not one of them about worldly success. Not one of them about personal skills. Not one of them is about personal accomplishments. And listen to this, to my chagrin, not one of them is about ability to speak in public. Did you get that? All these qualifications have to do with one thing, and that is the pursuit of godliness. And the pursuit of godliness or not pursuit of godliness makes or breaks a church. Why is that important? Because it is going to determine whether the congregation is going to pursue godliness or not. (laughs) Let's go through these 15 characteristics of fruit of godliness so you know where you are on that scale. First fruit of godliness is it being blameless and above reproach. Listen to me, that does not mean sinlessness. That's only in heaven. The Bible said if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But it means having unquestionable integrity. And integrity includes one's ability to confess and repent and confess wrongdoing. Integrity includes the willingness to obey God above all. Integrity includes willingness to submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit. Fruit number two, a pursuit of godliness, a husband of one wife. In other words, he has to be a one-woman man. Not even a hint of impropriety in that area. Third, in the pursuit of godliness, is that the children must be believers. You say, why is that important? Well, Paul knew that we all easily can fool the public. But it is hard for us to fool our own family. Our children see us in every situation, including the times of temptation, including the times of stress. And if our children, who know us best, say, I want to believe what you believe, that is a great endorsement. 
that children look upon our lives, and they see us reflected Christ, and then they model. But even among the godliest of couples, you have a child who wander off and wander away and is in doubt over the far country. But you train the child in the way he should go. When he's old, he's not going to depart from it. It means sooner or later they're going to come back. Amen? Amen. Number four, pursuing godliness. That person should not be overbearing or stubborn. Question, how does this manifest itself? goes like this. Listen carefully. It is my opinion that must be imposed. We're too subtle for that. We just express it differently. My idea must be followed. I am never in error. I always blame somebody else for my faults. Now, that is a sad leader. But it also means not arguing with non-believers. I know people in their witness they get into a debate. They get into an argument with non-believers. They're always trying to fight with them, argue with them. And, but that is really a terrible mistake because you can win the argument and lose the person. I think that's foolishness. It's a stubbornness. Five, in the pursuit of godliness, not to be quick-tempered. <laughs> well, you talk about testimony. Have you got a couple of hours? That's my testimony. That's my testimony. When I was a young Christian, I had a foul temper, and really was. I'm so glad you did not know me then. <laughs> and I remember the day, I'll never forget it, over 40 years ago, when I cried to God, I said, I cannot serve you. I cannot serve your people with this kind of temper. And boy, he took me through the ringer. Then that was just the beginning. And he continues to do that. <laughs> it's continuously going through it. Somebody said to Billy Sunday, Billy Sunday was a great baseball player turned evangelist. Someone said to him, he said, you know, I'm quick-tempered, but at least I don't hold grudges. I blow up, and it's all over. Billy Sunday said, yeah, so is the shotgun. But look at the damage it leaves behind. Here's what I have learned about short temper. It short-circuits good judgment. It produces unwise decisions. Why? Because God's wisdom, when it is at work, it will produce self-control and vice versa. Number six, not a slave to drunkenness. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul literally makes a contrast between the spirit of alcohol and the Holy Spirit of God. Alcohol or that spirit will make you lose control of your senses, but the Holy Spirit will help you practice wisdom and self-control every time. One spirit destroys you, the other spirit builds you up. Number seven, in pursuit of godliness, not given into violence. And it's interesting how he puts them kind of almost together, because enslavement to alcohol sometimes result in violence. The two somehow connected, because enslavement to alcohol makes a person prone to violence, physical or verbal. Number eight, in pursuit of godliness, it's got to be consistent with a desire for an honest gain, not dishonest gain. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 5, and 6. He said, some view godliness as means to financial gain. 
But there's one thing that you see clearly here about those who are pursuing godliness. Is they're contented. They have a lot, they're contented. They have little, they're contented. They have abundance, thank God. They have lack, God will provide. In whatever condition they're in, they are contented. They are contented because they trust in the sovereign hand of God. I remember one time an unbeliever said something that absolutely stuck to me like a knife. It was many years ago. I still remember it. He said, I want nothing to do with Christians and Christianity because it was a Christian who cheated me out of my life savings. Number nine, a person who pursues godliness is hospitable, sharing with others as the need arising. Number ten, love what is good. And you say, well, isn't that everybody? Everybody loves what's good. Now there are so many people love what is good only if it's good to them, if it's good for them. They love good, but only if they are the ones a beneficiary of it, but not for others. Beloved, listen to me. Pursuing of godliness is wanting other people to be blessed as much as you are, if not more. Eleven, sober-minded. It means sensible, realistic about your own strength and your own weakness. It means you have measured judgment about yourself. It means that you never allow the praise of people to go into your head because they can praise you one day and they can put you down another day. The only praise that's worthy of the name is what you receive from the Lord in that last day. Romans 12.3 says, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Number 12 is upright. It means fair-minded. It means just. It means impartial judgment. It means you don't put your thumb on either side of the scale. (laughs) It means that you go to the source of wisdom for everything you need, the big ones and the small ones, and always seeking His wisdom. Number 13, holy and devoted. 14, self-discipline and self-control. That is self-control in one's sexuality. Self-control in one's anger, self-control in one's drinking, self-control in one's temper, and self-control in one's attitude toward money. Did you notice? I know some of you already have. Six times, six times he uses the word self-control. In these just few verses, six times. In other words, If you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, you will be self-controlled. But if you're under the control of your own ego, you're going to be out of control. Verse 9, he adds the 15th fruit of that pursuit of godliness, and perhaps he left the most important one to last. Holding fast. Holding fast. Can you say that with me? Holding fast to the gospel message. Oh, my. These days, this one is more needed in pursuit of of godliness. It's desperately needed probably more than any other time in my memory, in my lifetime. Do you know why? 
because it's much easier today to compromise the gospel message than any other time that I remember. And you know why is that too? Because preachers and teachers and leaders are making it fashionable to compromise the truth. I want to tell you this as I conclude. It was 1961. There was a pastor in West Germany, in West Berlin, by the name of Paul Tuspern. He was watching as the communists were building the Berlin Wall. And as that wall coming up, thousands of East Berliners were rushing into West Berlin. He was in West Berlin. He's a West Berliner. And he felt the call of God upon his life to take his family and go the other way and go to East Berlin. And he said, because when the communists close that door and shut that gate, that church on the other side is going to need godly leadership, is going to need biblical teaching. While thousands are going to West Berlin, Pastor Paul and his family went to East Berlin, and boy, did he pay a price persecuted by the communists. The communists declared that the sick and the mentally ill are worthless to society, to the state. And so Pastor Torsburn founded a home for the elderly and a hospital for the mentally ill. Years passed, and a friend from West Berlin came to visit him. He asked him, he said, are your kids in university? He said, no, because for them to go to university, they have to join the Communist League, and they would not. Have you heard from your father and mother? Yes, a few years ago, both have died. The Communists will let me go across to bury them. I know I'm going to see them in heaven. Fast forward to November 1989. The Berlin Wall came down, and Pastor Tuspern and his family were free. These godly Christian leaders paid a hefty price, but he held tight on the truth of the gospel. He would not give an inch. He would not compromise. He would not water it down in order to please society, in order to please those in authority. He held on to the truth of the Scripture without compromise. As a result, the East German church remained strong throughout the communist rule because of the uncompromising of the truth by one man one family. And that is why Paul said, if you are really pursuing godliness above all things, you must cling to the truth of the gospel. The temptation is to water it down. The temptation is to say grace will cover it. The temptation is to tolerate sin. The temptation is this and that and the other thing. But you hold the truth in the gospel, for that is the main fruit of pursuing godliness. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though he was God, the very God in heaven, he laid aside the splendor and the trappings of his glory.
born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose again from the dead on the third day, so that whoever believes in Him be saved and from salvation to go into bearing fruit of godliness in the pursuit of godliness. Thank you, Father, that your word, though written nearly 2,000 years ago, it remained faithful. Some people paid with their life so that this word would stay true 2,000 years later. I pray that every single person, those who don't know Jesus, will come to him today. Those who know him and they've been going through shortcuts, begin to practice and pursue godliness the biblical way. For I pray this in Jesus' name. 